Hey everyone, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Sitting down again today with Mr. Max Hillebrand, and we are exploring Rothbard's book, The Ethics of Liberty. And so last time we left off covering bribery and boycotts, uh, we also discussed the, the rights of children and parents. I think that segues somewhat nicely into the next topic, which is the rights of animals in a, un, through a libertarian philosophical lens. Um, where should we start with this? I mean, I guess I've never thought about the rights of animals, actually. So I don't even know where to start. Yeah, you know, it's it's really a, a sensitive topic. It it uh, it it really is, and uh, there are again many many different spiritual traditions that actually advocate for a lot of rights for animals, right? Including veganism and and uh, out of ethical reasons, mm-hmm. right? Is uh, is important, um, and you know, funnily, this is not just you know uh, Hindu uh, or or Buddhism, uh, but but actually also in Christianity. You know, if you go back to to the Bible, uh, to Genesis, uh, and I quote, then God said, I uh, give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And so it it clearly actually states that that seed bearing trees and uh, and fruits uh, are to be food and and not animals, right? Um, which, Which I always found a very interesting conundrum but Rothbard brings here a very consistent argument to why the rights of humans do not apply to animals mm. and if I'm not mistaken later in the Bible it says something to the effect of uh, God giving all of the animals of the land and birds of the sea to man to do with as he wishes that actually comes before, uh, and again oh. I quote, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Right? And here obviously it says to rule over them, mm. uh, but says nothing about food. The only oh, time that food is mentioned is later is with, with seed-bearing uh, uh, trees. Interesting. Well, there's going to be a lot of angry Bitcoin carnivores listening to this. Uh, uh, well, we have to bring the strongman argument, right? And then Rothbard dismantles it. And according uh, to his philosophy, everything's all right with eating a good steak. <laughs> so what? how does Rothbard describe the rights of animals? Well, again, he starts with, with the basic axiom, humans act, right? That means that we apply our reason uh, to allocate scarce ends, uh, scarce means in order to pursue our ends. Right? That's mm-hmm. what action makes. There's this conscious choice, and reason is critical to this. Right? And uh, simply, um, animals don't have reason. They they don't show to be as reasonable as as we are, uh, just in their behavior. You know, they uh, in a sense they don't build cathedrals. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. right? They 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 uh, they survive, and uh, um, you know. Uh, are around and, and eat and procrastinate, uh, like, you know, proliferate and have children, mm-hmm. uh, so to say. So they, they exist, obviously, uh, but they are, they don't have the defining characteristics that makes a human human. And that is according to praxeology action, right? That's our starting mm-hmm. point. And animals 
I, and I don't think anyone can argue with that. Animals don't act in the same way that humans do. Right? They they don't perceive of the uneasiness of the future, uh, and and they don't plan right uh, much at least. So um, uh, Rothbard argues here that if there were to be a creature that we find uh, that shows the same capability to reason and that can petition for for uh, and defend you know and enforce uh, its rights uh, to property um mm. uh, in the scarce resource allocation throughout time you know in in this conflict resolution scheme that we're playing here um then that creature would have uh, the same rights as humans because that mm. creature acts making mm. it a human by our basic definition and our axiom oh this is okay so my question here would be how do we actually measure that because i you one could argue that animals have at least proto purposeful behavior right i'm thinking of the squirrel that's burying the nuts for winter right there's some perception and preparation uh perception of time and preparation for the future uh, embedded in that action, right? Well, I guess you could actually call that action because there seems to be a purpose separate from purely instinctual behavior, as I think Rothbard draws a line. And my, what it seems to me is the just to try and like push back on this is, is that not almost like this anthro, anthropomorphic arrogance in a way? We're saying we have reason <laughs> and purpose and all these other animals don't know what they're doing. They're just following their instincts. Like, couldn't that just be flipped on us and say we're just following our own, our own set of instincts, which, is, which just happen to be different from the animals themselves? Yeah, that's a great argument. And and Rothbard here really is a very, uh, how do you call it, racist, but in, in between species. Ah, <laughs> you know? okay. uh, he's very Speciest. human-centric here. <laughs> Speciest. <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, and um, he also brings up this other thought experiment that all of a sudden this creature arises, right? And, uh, you know, come, alien comes from outer space or something. And it just starts, you know, butchering people and, and killing innocent children. And it just doesn't stop, you know, complete psychopathic behavior, just mm -hmm. out for slaughter. Um, this is not the same type of creature uh, as a, a human, right? He, he clearly is only out for destruction and not for production, right? Uh, so, again, these, these uh, an ethic that starts with reasonable human action as a, a starting point, you know, does not apply to such an entity, right? So Rothbard argues that there would be no wrongdoing in whatsoever in, in, in like killing that, that uh, these entities and even excluding them completely, you know, from, from your society. It's basically a, a war then against, against the species. Uh, and that's, you know, an, an, another of his kind of thought experiments to prove the point. Okay. So, Okay, so I guess there's two ways I'm perceiving this now. Is one, is there a way to quantify this purposefulness? Because what to your point earlier, Rothbard's saying if there was an animal that petitioned for its property or defended its property, that would somehow elevate it into the realm of praxi. Well, maybe not praxeology, but of of purposeful purposeful action versus instinctual behavior. So it's like, what? How do we actually measure that progression? That's, Is it even possible? Difficult. Yeah, and it's the same question for children too. 
right? When do children turn mm-hmm. from potential human beings, potential actors, right. uh, to to actors, you know, to real human right, beings right, right. Uh, that that stand for their rights? Um, and the you know the that's that's the thing. That's why children are special, right? Because contradictory to animals. They have a pretty good track record of growing up to be reasonable <laughs> actors, you know. Right, right. While right. while a cow does not, right? Yeah. Sure, a squirrel might stack, uh, you know, uh, her her nuts. Which, by the way, the squirrel is obviously the best Bitcoin sat stacker ever. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so that should be the good mascot. But it, you know, it it still it doesn't engage with us in 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 the division of labor, uh, like in the really advanced nuanced and and maculous free market network of production stages that that we as humans can actually manifest right so it, there's there's just a, a different degree of of well reasonableness let's say of yeah. of, of cap- capability of the mind and you know wh- why is that i don't know maybe it is biological and literally yeah. the brain size or something like this uh, or maybe there is really some some spiritual reason and some purpose for for us crazy monkeys to be on this planet mm. right uh, but but that's kind of a different question it's just a situation that we find ourselves in that we are a species that are extremely like unique in in that capability to reason and to collaborate in in a free market and to choose not to be destructive but instead to choose to be productive and to help each other out right yeah oh, man it's okay so if he delineated that the defense of property would somehow um allow us to ascribe this purposeful action to animals. I mean, I would argue that you can find that, right? You can go into the wild and try and encroach on a lion's domain or what have you, his property, right? His territory, uh, which again, in, in some of my writing and I've, there's other books about this, that uh, there's some literature that, that makes the case that human beings express their territoriality and property rights. So we're, we're effectively, we've just taken this very basic biological impulse and put it and enshrined it in a more sophisticated social institution as we tend to do. You know, we're, we're the thing that makes us different is that we're able to reflect on our own behavior and then pass knowledge over time. And that seems to be connected here. It's like, that is the evolutionary advantage we have over all other animals, right? That we can, um our learnings are not confined to a single organism right like the like okay generation to generation of uh, animal is adapting but they're not passing on literature right there's not there's not knowledge from the collective hunts of lions across history that are passed on to the next um, at least not knowledge that we can understand that we can understand again that's a great point so i guess this this idea of self reflection that we have this capacity for self-reflection and um, recording and understanding symbols, language, this gives us an evolutionary advantage and an advantage that lets us accelerate and co-create our own evolution in many ways. Is that not what we're just defining here? We're just saying we are the superior creature because we have this superior evolutionary advantage that no other animal has. Therefore, we're the most powerful, so we have all the rights. Yeah, that's the, that is a good point, right? But I I do agree that the the self reflection really is a critical part. Again, that plays back to the Bible, right? Of uh, of uh, uh, Eve 
eating the, the fruit of the apple and then yeah. becoming self-conscious and realizing that she is naked and vulnerable and living in times of uncertainty, right? And, and that she needs to work to allocate scarce resources in order to achieve her ends, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's, uh, again, very in touch with praxeology and, and pretty in line with what Rothbard points out here, right? Even, even that paradise story was the, the realization of the uncertainty and the realization that we can do something about it. And, uh, and that there is a good and a bad path, so to say, right? You, you gain knowledge of good and evil and that the, the, the line of that runs right down through your heart. Yes. Oh, man, this is a lot to get my head around because I'm in one, one hand, I'm like, okay, humans have reason, this unique objective. We objectively have reason, which is a unique evolutionary advantage. It's a... Um, it's what distinguishes us from animal effectively, right? That we can communicate with language. And as Yuval Harari covers in Sapiens, it is that very ability that lets us cooperate flexibly in large numbers, right? He says, so you can unite 10,000 human apes under a flag, but the ape troop, you know, like a chimpanzee troop is limited to the Dunbar number effectively. So it is the very, our very ability to tell and interpret stories is what gives us this distinct evolutionary advantage by which we conquer the world. But if that's the argument for us being dominant and ruling over the animals, I think that's a dangerous argument, actually, um, because this, this is implying, if I'm understanding this correctly, that predator and prey dynamics determine who rules over who, right? We basically are the, we're the top of the food chain because we have the most power through our the power of reason if you will and i think this is dangerous because it seems like that argument could be applied for some humans ruling over other humans right if you can gain some some advantage maybe it's not an evolutionary advantage per se but i'm thinking in the case of the state where the state has all the guns or all the weapons like we can rule you because we have it's kind of like getting back to the might is right principle. And that feels like it's at odds with, with human reason. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And, and really one that that's tough to dig apart here. Right. Uh, and even I think Rothbard struggles to make a concise argument. And again, there are numerous counter arguments. Right? Yeah. So it, it is difficult for sure. But uh, one more point to, to bring up is that, you know, what's the first thing that Eve does after eating the fruit from the uh, tree, mm -hmm. right? She, she tells uh, um, Adam, right? And mm -hmm. she, she tells him the story. She communicates, convinces him to do the same thing, right? She ventured out of the cave and mm -hmm. now comes back inside to, to educate the others, mm -hmm. right? That's, uh, again, this, this is such a, this is like for so many stories, this is the differentiating type that starts the, um, you know, the, what it means to be human. And, you know, the thing is like, Again, why, why is praxeology so useful? Because it basically only has one assumption, and that's that humans act. Mm. And the cool thing is that I'm human and that I know that I act, right? I have no idea if Robert is a human or if he acts, right? right? To be honest, he might be just pixels on a computer screen right now, right, which right, he actually right. is for me. So yeah. I don't, I, I have, I have no certainty if, if Robert acts, right? But I, I know that I do, right? And uh, that means that it's, it's a, a reasonable starting point. Now, do, do cows act? Well, I, I don't know. Again, it's very difficult to, to build a coherent and, and useful framework mm -hmm. 
if we include cows here, because that would basically become, you know, more like conscious behavior or something like conscious existence. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just fundamentally a different science. And, you know, the thing is that, again, we, we want to solve a problem here fundamentally. And the problem is that of resource allocation. Right. We are humans. We act. We, we engage with our environment. We do change it in a substantial way, mm -hmm. much more than any cow would change the environment, arguably saying at least. Yeah. Uh, and, and we tend to have a bunch of conflicts among ourselves. You know? So what Rothbard proposes here is not just the economic, but also the ethical science that is based on the, the human action and interaction among humans, which are the most impactful for our level of analysis, mm. right? Sure, if a spaghetti monster comes flying in that acts human as well, well, then we will have to adapt our, our kind of mental model because mm. a new actor entered the field who behaves totally, like maybe very different, um, but uh, that will have to be adapted. And again, this is why Rothbard says we will grant the cows, the cows their right as soon as they petition for them, right? As soon as they would actually make a a strong claim to defend their, their property rights, so to say, or like yeah. to, you know, to, to to actually use it in an advanced way, um, that would change the situation. But they don't, arguably, right? Uh, arguably, they really only, you know, stand there and eat grass and are happy if they're well taken care of. And another point is, again, but this is not really a strong argument, but that is, you know, especially cows would just be dead in the wild. You know, nature is actually quite brutal and ruthless to certain types <laughs> of animals. So, you know, having a fenced off, secure paradise, uh, a walled garden where you can, you know, eat and raise your cattle in peace is maybe a nice deal. But again, uh, in some point of view, that's just saying, well, the slave has has it nice, right? He, he right. gets fed and, and has a secure being. Um, and again, it doesn't apply to the to the human context, but it uh, does it does not apply to the animal context. So Rothbard differentiates here. I'm not sure if he's accurate. It's funny you bring that up about the cows because I actually um, the place we've been living, we have wild cows around us, which I've never seen in my entire life. But there's a wild pack of cows, I guess you call them. Uh, they're the leanest, fastest cows I've ever seen. <laughs> Which well, I imagine that's what uh, the chaos of nature does to you. So that's interesting. Okay, so if the cows rose up with weapons and declared their sovereignty, you know, that's the point at which we say, okay, this is like an actual another sovereign actor. So it's almost like the rights have to be claimed or taken. In but, a way. but it doesn't even have to be done by force, right? The cows wouldn't have to pick up arms, so to say. They would just have to start to trade, you know, and ask for a price basically in exchange, uh, you know, and, and to to become an, an actual meaningful entrepreneur in, in our deep production stages. Okay, so participation in the division of labor is the the line then. Like if the cow started to trade with us and became a conscious economic actor, then Rothbard well, well, would say, hey, guys, we should stop eating those cows that are trading with us. Uh, basically, yes, because wow, okay. they, that, uh, them being there is, is more productive for everyone and uh, they can make their, their life on their own without like without leeching from us, but by being productive themselves, right. they, they can be a, a risk-seeking entrepreneurial actor. And again, if, if they participate in the division of labor, then they are already an actor. Right. right, you cannot be participant in the division of labor without being an individual that acts. Yes. It doesn't happen.
Right. right? So if they come to the state, you know, that, that, that they would somehow barter and, and produce, uh, that, that would make the point, I, I think. That's interesting. So I wonder if just running this thought experiment forward, cows start trading with us, they're conscious economic actors, but let's say that their contribution through trade, their contribution to the division of labor was less demanded than their meat in the marketplace. Would, would Rothbard still say, okay, just by virtue of them participating or trying to participate in trade, should we stop eating them? Like, is there some fundamental right that emerges or would he say, let the market decide is cow meat more valuable than, you know, whatever they have on offer in the, in the marketplace? Well, I think there are two different arguments to, uh, to this here. One is the economic argument and Rothbard made a pretty similar argument to slavery. Right. And he wrote phenomenal history on, on, on the American, uh, well, colonies, um, uh, conceived in liberty in in five parts, and Patrick Newman just uh, curated a sixth part uh, out of the handwritten notes from Murray. So that's definitely a a must read. It's mm. uh, a couple thousand pages, but worth it. As <laughs> 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 every rough part is. So, um, but but in any case, so um, where did I wanted to take it? Uh, take it with this conceived in liberty. Uh, well, I guess you're saying that, that yeah, would the would the cow. By virtue of it participating or attempting to participate in the market, would it be more valuable than its meat? Or would Rothbard say, let the market decide? Now I have it again. Thanks. So yeah. uh, it, it was the argument about uh, slavery and that in the colonies, uh, as productivity increased, right, the the cost to maintain a slave was was uh, more and more burdensome for for mm-hmm. what uh well, for what he could produce so it was actually not profitable to keep slaves mm-hmm. um and therefore long before it became illegal um most profit seeking entrepreneurs actually stopped to uh to uh like have slaves uh, yeah. and and just hire them because it was it was cheaper uh, as they were more productive right um you know for multiple reasons just for you know the, the threat of them running away and you needing to enforce this and, and all of this you know slavery isn't cheap um so there's an e- economical argument for why it failed yes um but the reason why it failed on an economic level is because those were human slaves who were reasonable actors who could have been deployed peacefully in a mutually beneficial voluntary exchange economy and they could only benefit of that because they were human actors right, right? so because we enslave cattle so to say you know, and Ed Rothbard makes a point. Cattle can be your property. You can homestead animal. You can own them, right? You can have the full decision-making yeah. power over what happens to these animals and to have the full responsibility to live with the consequences, right? Always comes hand in hand. Um, so, but the, the reason why that is okay and all right, ethically speaking, is because these cows are not human actors. Interesting. Okay, so... <clears throat> I, okay, I'm. What I keep coming back to with this, because this line of argument is very interesting to me, because I'm thinking through kind of sovereign individual lens in a way. It's, is it all Darwinism, right? Is it all about can you protect? Like, is the property right completely rooted in its defensibility? Because I, as Rothbard set out in the beginning of this book, he seems to argue. That by virtue of humans having this self-reflective capacity for reason, that we have some unique right to not be aggressed against. But it seems to me in these other domains, like 
animals specifically that for them to earn a similar right, they would need to um, be able to defend the right. Like, is the right rooted in its defensibility? This right to non-aggression? Uh, no, I, I would differentiate them. Um, to have a right and to be able to defend the right is different. Um, and I think to answer your question, re remember what Rothbard wrote in the early parts of the book, right? That uh, a, I know, I'm probably going to misquote, but the ethic uh, of a uh, of you know a, a group, so to say, uh, is dependent on on what is best for that group to survive and thrive. Something like this, right? Okay, okay yeah. The uh, the the good of a creature is what's in line with its nature. Something like that, right? Yeah, something like that, yeah. right? And the thing is, because humans are reasonable, it is in their nature to understand that mutual beneficial exchange is prosperous for, for everyone. Yes. Right? And, and therefore, it becomes an ethic for all reasonable creatures to collaborate together and to build something much more beautiful than they could have built on their own. Okay, fair. But I think in some instances, it's also reasonable given certain circumstances or technological realities and lack of scruples, it would be reasonable for some human conscious actors to transgress against the property of others and take it right. If it's profitable. So what, this is where I, I keep hitting this bedrock of Darwinism. It's like, okay, then the purpose of innovation and institutions, like it's not only does they're designed to create more wealth, make it more abundant through the division of labor, but it also needs to have this resistance to theft, right? We need social institutions need to restrain humans from stealing from one another. Our technologies need to restrain one another from stealing one. Another. Like we need to remove the possibility of immoral behavior technologically. I think that's the best way to advance. And that's one of the core value propositions of Bitcoin, right? Unconfiscatable capital. Um, I don't like, this is where I'm, I feel like I might be differing from Rothbard a little bit. He thinks there's some universal ethic that we should just all be reasonable and see that cooperation is the best strategy. But in many cases, you know, this is like the hawk versus dove evolutionary game theory. If there's, if everyone's a dove, all, which is just say to say they don't escalate conflict they're nonviolent. then all of a sudden it's really profitable to be the one hawk amid a bunch of doves where you escalate conflict because you'll just you'll clean up right your profit margins are huge um and the opposite right if you're this and i wrote about this in one of the pieces but there's a there's an evolutionary game theory theoretic matrix to this so is rothbard's libertarian philosophy here divergent from darwinism I or don't am I think so. Perceiving it, because Rothbard is not a pacifist, right? He he doesn't apply. Uh, he doesn't want individuals to be doves, right? Or defenseless and hoping that there is no aggressor. Right. He's he's very uh, like with his feet on the ground, so to say, to understand that there are attackers, very real, and they are both private individuals as well as state actors, uh, and and they are a massive threat. Yes. Um, so so yes, uh, like. That is that's very much addressed. It's just that what what he lays out here is that so we find these these monkeys with free will and and the power to choose basically, mm -hmm. and they can make an infinite amount of choices. And some choices have 
um, so there, there are, you can logically deduce that some choices are, are where everyone wins and some actions are mm. where one party wins and one party loses. Oh, okay. So choosing positive sum or zero sum games. Yes. Right. Okay. And, and it means that if someone forces you to be in a zero sum game, yes. then there is nothing wrong with you applying force to stop that game from happening, so to say, right? To, right. to forcefully exit that game, like you, you, you're, you don't, you're, you're not obligated to follow the rules, so to say, of someone else's game without mm-hmm. your consent to it. Um, and that if you do this strategy to only engage in mutually beneficial games mm-hmm. and to forcefully defend yourself. Because you know that you can, right? Mm-hmm. And because that, uh, because it is the right thing to do, and that there is nothing wrong about it, right? Then you will defend yourself against malicious actors, right? And focus your attention on on in the free market society, so to say. Hey, everybody! As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the twenty first century, and one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Okay, that is reasonable. However, I think it does get murky again. And I think the Bible talks about this blood vengeance, where to your point, like you have the right to self-defense. So if someone transgresses against your property, you can defend against it, you know, in proportion to the transgression. But presumably sometimes there's a conflict that arises, someone gets killed, and then the heirs of the person that got killed may seek vengeance against the perpetrator maybe kill one of their family members, and then the cycle repeats, um, which was a real problem uh, in, in some of the biblical stories, right? These, these cycles would repeat for a long time. And so apparently the emergence of like the court and justice system was something that was meant to rectify this. Um, it, it, exactly, right? Again, humans have the power to choose the, the benevolent act, right? And to hurt mm. others and to break their property. And Rothbard acknowledges that, right? That is the reality that we live in. That yes. is what it means to be human, right? Um, and but therefore, it also means that we have to keep that in check. And it's it's good to keep that in check, right? It's, okay, it's that, the ethically right yes. thing to do. That's what I want to drill into. So, to, the keeping it in check isn't that necessarily like the only way to make it sustainable to sustainably create a socioeconomic system where certain agents or actors do not transgress against the property of other actors, it is necessary that we construct 
systems and tools that make theft unprofitable, right? That's because so long as it's so long as it's profitable, it seems like someone's going to do it. Yes, I agree. That like that's a great point, but that's the strategy of how to achieve a a sustainable state of liberty, so to say, right? And that is one where the defense of property rights is very cheap, and the cost of attack of property rights is infinitely expensive. Right. Beauty of cryptography. Yes. That's what cypherpunks and crypto anarchists are all all into. Right. That's why it's so interesting. But uh, again, that's strategy. Right. And and Rothbard later talks about strategy too. Oh, okay. But, so that's what it know, is. I'm I'm conflating then strategy and ethics. A, a, exactly. Right. The, okay. the the one is like the one is basically let's find the goal that that we all should strive for. Mm, and then the, North, the second the is North how do we Star. get there? Got you. Exactly. Okay. So the the ethics is the actual ideal moral north star to which reason should be aimed. The good the should, right? But then strategy would be the practical implementation of how, which would involve increasing the cost to benefit ratio of property right violations through technologies and social institutions. Yeah, and it's also a lot about you know taking responsibility because again, life is suffering. The mm-hmm. individual is in a state of uneasiness, mm-hmm. and nature is constantly out to kill you. You know, yes. and there are a thousand and one ways that you could die. You know, starvation, cold, heat, water, yes. like too much water, not enough water. Yes, Everything yes. kills you, basically, right, right. right? So, and um, there is a lot of there is a lot of things that are just you know bad luck. Like life's tough. You know, you yeah. you live up in an area where all the ground is salty and you can grow nothing and your animals won't, won't graze. Right, right, right. You know, right. just bad hand dealt, you know, yes. that, that sucks. And it might not necessarily have been your actions that caused that, right? So that is some level of suffering that might not be your responsibility. So it's like your direct influence, you know, yes. your actions did not cause that necessarily. Right. But then there are other types of suffering Right, mm. that you very much did cause, mm, you know. And okay, for example, okay. going out and and raping the women of the next village and pillaging mm-hmm. them, you know, and killing the children is probably right. going to come down as a bad consequence for you, and you're going right. to end up in more suffering that you would like. Mm. And if that's the point, then you can ask yourself: Did I do something wrong? Where mm. did I make a mistake? Right. And a a a, a ethic is a basic level you know that that highlights the most severest of mistakes mm. you know and that is to completely negate the rationality of private property uh, and and to aggress and and to to be a parasite instead to uh, of being productive right many reasons to be that but it's just not it's not the full potential that a human could do and that's the difference between the suffering that's kind of na- just the nature of things and the man-made suffering right. that is very much your fault Right, very, very much your fault because you did that action that you could have a priori deduced that it would create more suffering than than good. Right. Okay. Now, now we're getting somewhere. I think, at least from my own understanding, ethics is um, perhaps somewhat about. Well, let me let me start here. So, violating property of someone else say that it's a profitable act for whatever reason. I've got a ton of weapons. You don't have any. I can just come and take your farm, right? And that's going to yield a lot of economic benefit to me. That could be consistent with a Darwinian-like economic strategy, right? I'm the predator. You're the prey. 
but it would always contradict this universal human ethic of this is contrary to human reason, right? You're, you're creating a zero sum game when we know a priori positive sum games are net benefit for everyone forever. So you could have a non-ethical action that is a, that is a effective strategic action. You could have a divergence between ethics and strategy. Yeah, that's that's the big question. If the ends justify the means, right? Mm. If 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 you have the intent of bringing a, 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 a utopia, and you do an action that is against basic ethics, like for example the non-aggression right. principle, you yes. know, butchering the children for the greater good, yes. um, then this, well, you know, it's 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 an ethic to to say that that's a good thing to do. Uh, but I would argue it's a horrible ethic, you know, right. because it leads to very dire consequences and you know it's this is also kind of backed by darwinism you know because we 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 kind of did try you know different strategies of how to collaborate one was with the free market you know that somewhat a little bit we tried that out in the west worked kind of well you know and then we tried communism which is basically full-on collectivist and everyone is looting and there's no private property whatsoever and that turned out to be a organism that died off miserably you know, yes. a very slow and brutal death, yes. but nevertheless a, a death. Yeah, yeah. The 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 apex of of human horribleness, frankly, right? And when we, and this is so, I keep coming back to this point too that it's just about clarity of property, as we laid out in many all of our previous recordings. Like, if you just focus on property, it cuts out a lot of the noise here. So, I how I'm thinking about this right now is that ethics is sort of recognizing your sphere of control in a way, which uh, there was a great football coach I heard speak. His name escapes me at the moment, but he said he teaches all of his, his players that there's only two things in the world you can actually control, which are your effort and your attitude. Essentially, you can't control outcomes. You can't control, you know, all of the natural environment, what it's going to do to you. If it's going to rain, if your wife's going to leave you, like all these things are just completely out of your control, but individually we all control our effort and our attitude. And so when that sphere of control, like in the mind of a, of a communist, I guess you would say, or any statist, actually, I don't want to zero in on just the communist, all statist, they think they can control the property of others to some extent, right? To a greater or lesser extent, whether via taxation, inflation, conscription, so that's when the ethic becomes polluted in a way, because you've actually gone beyond the truth, which is the truth is you can only control yourself, essentially. But when you, as soon as you think you can, can control others, you have now given rise to um, a flawed system of ethics. Yes. And, and one that is for sure beneficial to some, you know, uh, like it's it's it not that zero it's sum, a net then, negative yeah. game, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, one party wins, the thief. Right. And obvious, at least in the short term. In the uh, short, but, but in the long run, the thief loses too, right? Because you now exactly. have created the zero sum game that destroys civilization if it scales, a la Soviet Russia, a la 2021 United States. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's an extreme example. Um, again, Rothbard kind of starts out the the book with this, right? That uh, you you have a person in the forest, you know, lonely lonely island, and he finds mushrooms and he's hungry, 
right? Yeah. And he wants to eat it because he thinks that the mushroom will nourish him, right? Right, right, and, right. and then this new actor comes on the scene and he understands that the mushroom is poisonous and will kill him. Mm. And then he exclaims loudly, like, don't eat it. The mushroom is poisonous. Right. right? Now that's, and then of course the first person stops eating, right? And this is a really reasonable scenario like many people would act like that sure there are right. probably a couple psychopaths who, who would think to themselves oh yeah that's poisonous but i kind of want to see him die sure that might happen too right. but that person actually understands that if there are two people living on that island that's much better than just one person because he alone you know he can never sleep basically he, there's always shit to do and right. he has no time but with a second person things become a lot more easier when you can cooperate you know and in many numerous ways so it's again in the self-interest of that first, uh, of that second person, or you know, the on-standard, to you know share his knowledge, to speak, yeah. you know, to to transfer a pattern um, of of information, non-scarce goods, in order to ensure the the best flourishing of that person. Because if that person flourishes, if he is wealthier, then he also has a lower time preference. He can focus yeah. on longer-term investments and build more useful tools to solve the problems of everyone. Yes. Okay. So let's drill into that example. I think, so the guy that advised the other guy not to eat the mushroom because he knew it was poisonous, presumably he derived that knowledge from some past experience, some empirically derived knowledge, whether he saw someone eat it and die, or maybe he's a chemist and he tested it and he knew through an empirical uh, methodology that it would not, the biology and the mushroom would cause the human to die. Did we need the 20th century, the catastrophes of the 20th century to empirically prove that transgression against property rights via the state don't work, right? Like it destroys civilization in the same way that guy needed some empirical knowledge of the poisonous mushroom before he could relate the information? Like, did we need to, I know a priori, we could look at this and say, hey, you transgress against property, it's gonna cause all these second order effects. But, you know, even today, people don't respect that necessarily. People don't even know what that means. Did we have to empirically prove it to ourselves? That's a great question. Um, and, you know, arguably that's one of the, most stellar recent achievement, you know, of the Renaissance and Enlightenment was to grapple with reason and mm -hmm. to master reason and to become even more conscious of it, you know, and to understand what it does and and how useful it is, right? And how right. it can really make a substantially better world. I mean, look at, you know, medicine and physics and, and yeah. the sciences, you know, that's just incredible. Um, it's, it's just that... You know, if, uh, kind of reason was applied in the wrong way with economics, so to say, and that led to a very easy excuse to steal from people. And again, you know, people are benevolent and want to steal from people, so that's just what we do, apparently. Yeah. And right. and then any excuse is good. But the cool thing is that with reason, we can, you know, we can we can logically establish it. So you know, well, I guess we did not have a proof of this. You know, even before 1996 or so, uh, uh, sorry, 1960 something ish, right? Uh, because Rothbard wrote that book there. Like before then, there was no logical, praxeological proof that uh, the property rights are a universal ethic. Right. You know, nobody has written it down. So 
arguably, it really took us that long to articulate it, mm. uh, at least in the tradition of thought that we currently hold. Um, but the, you know, the basics of it are, are ancient. You know, again, yeah. this is the ancient stories of, you know, Mesopotamia all the way to the Bible. Uh, and, you know, of course, the American Revolution is, is just a highlight of it. So I, I, it does seem that there was always a, a curiosity about this subject. You know, if, if there is this universal good to strive mm -hmm, towards mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and how to build towards that. And maybe it just took that scientific revolution in mathematics and physics mm. um, to sh to sharpen us more of, to understanding reason uh, and how it can be applied to us crazy humans, you know, contrary to stones and, and yeah. objects, you know, how, how does reason apply to actors? And the, the great insight of Ludwig von Mises was just to articulate that the fact that we do have reason is the differentiating achievement. And that is where our new starting point is, you know, reasonable human actors. Yeah, wow, it's a lot to take in. So Ethics of Liberty written in the 60s, you said? Is that right? I got to double check that. Around, well, so... Because to your point, all right, the revolution, the scientific revolution, which got us, you know, gave us incredible power with mathematics, which is rooted on an a priori epistemology itself. And then by extension, physics, which in its most sophisticated forms is almost just like applied mathematics, right? We're, we're predicting things with physics that we can't even observe empirically. A black hole being an example, we predicted it 50 years before we ever observed it. Um, it seems like that could that's sort of a double-edged sword then because in the 20th century those same those same advances the scientific advances is what gave us such sophisticated weapons right up to and including the atom bomb so we're li i mean we're living it almost like that we're we're discovering reason the power of reason even when we use the term positive sum game which it seems like that's kind of what reason if you had to generalize about which way Rothbard's trying to point us with this universal ethic, he's like, it's just towards positive sum games away from negative or zero sum games, right? Exactly. Like, Go play this game because it benefits everyone forever, pretty much. These games <laughs> are destructive. That's what's reasonable. But in that same vein, so the discovery of reason came through this, you know, advance in knowledge. We're also advancing our weaponry and ability to destroy one another, which we saw put to use uh, on large display in the 20th century. Um, yeah, it just seems like a very double-edged sword in a way. I don't like, does it keep progressing that way? The more scientifically advanced we become, the more we realize the value of reason and positive some games, yet the more self-destructive we become, or is there some way to right the ship here where we say, hey guys, let's just stop playing all those zero-sum games um, and just go the path of reason. I know that's that's a great point. And you know, looking into history helps here. I mean, look at the Roman Empire and, and what they have achieved. You know, just a canalization in the cities, the streets. Like, I mean, those were like marvelous, like crazy, you know, the Colosseum and all that they could do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's you know, we can't even do that today. So you know, yeah. they've they were quite quite successful in the extent of their division of labor. Let's say that at least. Yeah. Yet still, they they crumbled and collapsed, right? Um, maybe because they they had these incredible tools that allowed them to conquer the entire planet, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and uh, that 
you know, interestingly, like this, this uh, is, is somewhat again of a, of a centralization pressure uh, or a pooling pressure, as Eric Waskill would put it, actually, which, which is an inherent design flaw in Bitcoin too, right? That if we pool towards a, a large central third party, then things start to collapse. Uh, and there is just a, 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 a huge tendency somehow to pool towards these big centralized parties. Um, I, and I don't know if this cycle has always existed, you know, if it increases in swing every time, it seems that we're a bit more advanced now than we were yeah. back in Rome, but I don't know how it was in Egypt. So, you know, right, right, right. Uh, crazy things could have happened back then. So I don't know where we are now in relation to other times in the cycle. Uh, and if there even could be a tool to break that cycle, um, I'm not sure if any tool can do that as again, the, the, the line between good and evil runs down through the heart of every individual and individuals are the ones using tools. And so the tool might help shape incentives, but I don't think that they will eradicate what makes us human. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if there's an actual end to, to this type of cycle or if this just, mm -hmm. you know, how, how the mega trends end up evolving. Yeah. So some things to think about here. I, one book that comes to mind, I don't know if you've read this one, it's The Lessons of History by Will Durant Will, and his wife, Will and Oriel. It's a 100-page book that basically lays out a synopsis of history. It's really brilliantly written, clearly broad strokes, given it's 100 pages covering all of world history. Um, but one of the arguments they make there is that they're, they call it, I think, something like the heartbeat of history. And they say the systole and diastole of history is this tendency towards centralization and then decentralization, centralization and then decentralization. So, you know, someone pulls together a lot of power, like maybe Alexander the Great, and then something happens and the empire collapses and then power re-decentralizes and then it reaches some um, point that it starts to, to go the other direction again. And I want is, you know, maybe this is biblical too, kind of like the Tower of Babel being centralization versus the flood being total decentralization, something like that. Um, you know, order and too much order, the dangers of too much order, the dangers of too much chaos. To your earlier point, the dangers of drinking too much water, the dangers of not drinking enough water. It's like we, we're constantly searching for this middle way. Um, and I guess it seems to me that another point that maybe Rothbard doesn't make as much is that we all often think reason or the mind is just inside of our head, but it, we really do express it outside of ourselves too, right? Like the, the tools and institutions and things we create, they are an extension of mind. So maybe that's the key is that we need to imbue more of our tools and institutions and property with reasonableness. And that, you know, I guess you could insert Bitcoin there as one of the most reasonable tools that's ever existed, right? It's money that's really hard to steal and stealing is unreasonable. Therefore, Bitcoin is very reasonable. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. Um, yeah, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on no, that. No, that's, that's actually really spot on, I would say. Um, and, you know, having, ha having the right tools at your disposal is important right? because one thing is to understand your rights and, and to know what is your property and what is not, mm -hmm. right? And where it is ethical to... Uh, to act and and what what is not ethical to do right that's very helpful 
just to you know give a, a, a rough frame. But if someone would would burst that, well, obviously you do have the right to defend yourself, and if you don't, you're gonna be dead and an evolutionary error. <laughs> so you know, better pick up the gun and defend yourself. Mm. Um, and the better that you can. So there's of course there's always the thing that many tools can be used both aggressively as well as defensively. Mm-hmm. You know, you can use a knife to, you know, start the fight and slip someone's throat, or you can use it, you know, as a defense against a burglar breaking into your house. Yeah. You know, um, uh, you know arguably only the atomic gun, uh, sorry, the atomic bomb, it cannot be considered a, a defensive weapon. Well, maybe it is, you know, just with mutually assured self-destruction. Uh, well, so, yeah, it was sort of used defensively in a way and when the americans ended world war ii right i mean sort of I, I mean clearly very offensively but i guess you could argue that it defended from further destruction yeah but you see maybe the that's a stretched about, argument <laughs> and i i actually don't even think that it applies to bitcoin you know because sure the rules that are defined within the bitcoin network and on the bitcoin blockchain they are basically un- uh, like unbreakable. You know, they they mm-hmm. will be enforced. If you have a transaction with a valid signature script, it goes through. Like if you pay transaction fees, it will get confirmed. You know, and and others will mm-hmm. recognize it. Um, but the the thing is that this can be used again for good and for bad. You mm-hmm. know, you can use this as an uh, as as a defense. You know, to protect yourself from dilution of coin via inflation or f- uh, by transaction censorship, right? For mm-hmm. for theft, uh, so to say. Um, then this this is very useful. But in the same scenario, there you know there could be that someone steals money from you. You know he actually d- takes away uh, you know something and then has Bitcoin, which is you know uh, very difficult to seize. So Bitcoin, the technology, can be used by criminals, right? Ultimately, sure. um, and and again, maybe it it will be incredibly successful for criminals. You know, I like. You know, for example, the state just gets the great idea to print a whole bunch of money and buy Bitcoin with them. You know, yeah. they get to print the fiat, steal it from everyone, and they accumulate oh, yeah. a massive hoard of Bitcoin. Yeah, right? that is that is very decent option for them. Very to do. likely to happen. Exactly, and yeah. it would be very bad for Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. So, uh, well, well, I arguably. mean, I guess it depends how you define good or bad, because clearly. If a central bank started printing money and acquiring Bitcoin and that information became public, that would trigger this geopolitical game theoretic rush for other central banks to do the same, presumably, and it would cause Bitcoin's market cap to explode. So that would be good in one sense if you're holding Bitcoin, but would be bad in terms of who actually had position on the network. Yeah, Eric Voskiel makes a great point, right? That the only the only entity that actually defines, verifies, and enforces the monetary integrity of of this currency, the actual supply, you know, of the twenty one million, and that is only the merchant who runs a fully verifying node yeah. at the time where he has a transaction in exchange. So he, you know, sells you stake uh, yeah. for Bitcoin at that yeah. point where he gives up his scarce property in the stake in exchange for that Bitcoin. We have praxeological proof that this network and this currency, you know, ha- has been deemed valuable uh, to be used in medium of exchange. You know that, uh, and that is the point where the enforcement of the twenty-one million is done. 
right? So if if that would break, you know, if merchants no longer verify the Bitcoin transactions that they receive, but instead mm-hmm. all of that is is hoarded in in a state and uh, mm-hmm. making payments in Bitcoin has become illegal, you know, mm-hmm. then Bitcoin essentially fails if if that would come through. Wow, I'd love I'd love to hear more about that argument. Um, that's not one I've explored deeply. Um, or maybe to to bring then the a bit of the conclusion of this is that um, ultimately any security any technology is backed by people. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, a doorknob is is you know if if it's not getting used by someone to open the right. door. What else is it, right? Yes. So the same with Bitcoin. It 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 always exists in the context of human action. Right. In the uh, the seeking to uh, remove uneasiness today, um, and to reach a better situation tomorrow. Yes. Right. And and if people perceive subjectively that Bitcoin is a useful tool for that, then they will continue to use it in a censorship resistant way. Right. They will do it disregarding of the rules. And even under coercion, right? Bitcoin assumes the axiom of resistance. Right? Mm. There, it is possible that humans resist the the obligation to follow orders mm-hmm. uh, and uh, by the state uh, and to to actively work against that. Uh, in that mm. sense, Bitcoin is is a pure black market technology mm. um, because that is exactly what censorship resistance means. Mm. Well said. <laughs>